Yeah, keep your Bibles at John 7, 1 through 13. Last Sunday, we looked at how some of Jesus' disciples abandoned Him after He preached His synagogue discourse, and that took place at Capernaum up north in Galilee. These disciples were not true disciples. Uh, they were superficial or fake disciples. True disciples actually believe in Jesus as Messiah. These people did not. And true disciples will not abandon Jesus because of His teachings. They might have difficulty with some of His teachings, a hard time understanding them, difficulty in obeying some of them, but they're not going to uh, turn back and go return to the world, so to speak. These guys and gals were superficial. They were only into this whole deal for what they could get out of it. They were looking to get things from Jesus like healings and, and free food and these sorts of things, maybe deliverance from Rome. They were not interested in the spiritual things He provides like forgiveness of sins and cleansing and righteousness, reconciliation with God, eternal life, all of the, the really, really good stuff, the meaningful stuff. They didn't want any of that. They just wanted the temporal things. And so they left after they heard a difficult sermon filled with hard sayings. This morning we're going to begin to look at what took place six months later during the next major feast, the Feast of Booths. So if you go back to the beginning of chapter 6, you'll see that all of those events transpired in and around the Passover. So that's a major feast. So now we fast forward six months in advance. We go all the way out to the Feast of Booths. And uh, it's just amazing to me that John skips that much time in ministry in his gospel account. But we need to remember that it was not his goal or objective to... Uh, you know, to record another blow-by-blow -blow account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. His point was to uh, write down and highlight specific teachings and specific miracles for the purpose of proving His Messiahship and deity. So, of course, John will skip around, and we've got a six-month gap here between 6 and chapter 7. John's account of Jesus' ministry during the Feast of Booths is actually recorded in chapters 7 and 8. So all of 7 and all of 8 are the things that Jesus preached and did during that Feast of Booths. MacArthur said uh, the main thrust of this section, really these two chapters and the Feast of Booths and all of that, he said it can be summarized as high-intensity hatred of Jesus. Now, obviously, he's referring to the Jews or religious leaders because their high-intensity hatred of Jesus is clearly seen in these chapters, literally from beginning to end. Chapter 7, the chapter we're beginning today, it opens with, in verse 1, the Jews were seeking to kill him. Well, that sounds like high-intensity hatred to me. And then if you flip over a page and go all the way to the end of chapter 8 to verse 59, it says the Jews picked up stones to throw at him. So literally the bookends of, of this section of chapter 7 and chapter 8, the bookends are seeking to kill Jesus and trying to kill Jesus, which are examples of what? High-intensity hatred. So MacArthur is right. Now, high-intensity hatred of Jesus might be the main thrust of this section, but it is not the only theme. There are many great themes in chapters 7 and 8. 
such as the Father's timing, which is what we'll focus on today. Um, another one would be rivers of living water. That's something we'll see toward the uh, end of chapter 7. And then probably one of the more famous themes or subjects is I am the light of the world, and that's in the next chapter. This morning, as I said, we're going to focus on the Father's timing or verses 1 through 13. Let's pray before we get to work. Lord, we acknowledge your beauty and your awesomeness, your glory, your holiness. Uh, Lord, we confess to you that uh, apart from Jesus, we are but worms, and that through Christ, we can become your adopted sons and daughters. Uh, We also confess to you that apart from the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit, we are just sort of dumb in the sense that we, we can't really hear the word the way that we need to hear it. We can't comprehend it, and we certainly can't apply it. So we pray, Lord. We, we, we thank you for who you are and, and the gifts that you've given us, but we pray and petition you for the work and presence of the Holy Spirit today, that he would do that supernatural work of opening our ears and our minds and our hearts to the truth. Uh, Lord, there's many subjects in this text that we're going to look at today, and I know there's one primary one, and that is your timing, the Father's timing. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us about that and that you would grant us the wonderful gift of contentment and patience, which is not something that uh, is natural for me or pretty much for anyone else. So, Lord, be glorified in this place as we focus on your word. Teach us and train us, Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be starting at verses 1 and 2. I hope you're there. You ready? Good. It says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. And it says, He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill Him. There's that first bookend. It says, Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. The word this refers to the events of chapter 6. What did we read about in chapter 6? We read about the Passover that was at hand, the feeding of the 5,000, you know, Jesus walking on water, uh, the, the synagogue discourse, one of the great sermons of the Lord. We also closed up the chapter with a little section on the exodus of those disgruntled disciples. Those are the things that the word this refers to after those events, after those things. So you could say after this, the events of chapter 6, Jesus went about in Galilee. Went about means he he traveled throughout the whole region. Uh, He did this for six months because there is six months between the Passover feast and the Feast of Booths. So you've got this six-month window where Jesus goes about and goes around in Judea. Now, John does not tell us what Jesus did during this time, but the other Gospels do. According to Matthew 15, 21 through 28, and Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37, Jesus put in some serious steps. If he'd owned a Fitbit back then, he'd have blown his friends out. He basically walked the entire length and width of the region of Galilee. I mean, this dude did some serious, serious walking. Or maybe he went by 
the back of a donkey. I don't know. I think they pretty much walked it. But I tell you what, this guy, he went the whole length, top to bottom, and the whole width of Galilee, which is a pretty decent-sized province or region. He went all the way north to Tyre and Sidon, which were coastal cities in Lebanon. So he actually went outside of Galilee. And he went as far east as Decapolis, which is a confederacy of ten cities. Nine of these cities, those ancient cities that were in Decapolis, are actually located in modern-day Jordan. So it kind of gives you an idea of how far he went. And then during this time of traveling about in Galilee, going to Decapolis, Tyre, and Sidon, Jesus performed miracles like healings, exorcisms. He cast out some demons. And he also fed 4,000 people. He performed a similar miracle that he did before to 5,000. You can read about the things that he did in Matthew chapter 15, chapter 17, and in Mark 8. He also revealed to Peter, James, and John a glimpse of his divine glory. We call that the transfiguration. You know, when he went up to the top of the mountain and he was transfigured in front of them and he he went into this glorified state, pretty much blew their minds. You can read about that in Matthew 17, 1 through 8. That is something else that took place during this six-month period. But most of this period was spent discipling the 12 disciples. That was his primary focus during that six months. Yes, he traveled around, but as he went, he was discipling and training and preparing them. Uh, I think Matthew chapter 16, 17, and 18 show that during that time, Jesus taught them extensively. And if you think about it, these guys were the ones that were to take over the ministry after he ascends, and so it was vital that they receive proper and, and really, really good training, gospel training, and that really is what he focused on in that six months. What is the Feast of Booths? What is it? There are actually seven feasts on the Jewish calendar. All of them are recorded in Leviticus chapter 23. Literally, they're listed right there. Bam, 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 bam. The Bible tells us several things about the Feast of Booths. I just want to build some context for you so you know what we're looking at here. First, it was the last feast of the year. It was celebrated during the Jewish month of Tishri, which falls in between or basically over September and October. And it lasted seven days. You can read about that in Leviticus 23, 33 through 43. So it was the last feast of all the Jewish feasts. It was celebrated during Tishri, and it was seven days long. Second, it was a feast of special joy and thanksgiving as the Jews reflected on God's provision through the harvest season that just passed. Leviticus 23, 39. So it's a feast that is associated with the bringing in of the harvest. Third, it was a feast where the people were ordered to dwell in booths or tabernacles, or even tents, if you want to call it that, and they were made of branches. Why did they do this? Well, they did this in remembrance of, the, uh, of how they dwelt in temporary booths after they left Egypt and went out into the wilderness. When they left there, they basically slept in tents for like 40 years. This feast was the feast where they actually commemorated that time and built these little booths and slept in them. They built them on the streets. If they had a house, the houses then had flat roofs. They would literally not sleep in their bedrooms. They would sleep on the roof in these booths during this time. 
must have been quite a sight to see all these little tents popped up all throughout Jerusalem. So that it, it commemorated the sleeping in booths as they had done so uh, long ago. Fourth, it was a feast where more sacrifices were offered up than any of the other Jewish feasts. Number 20, uh, numbers 29, 12 through 34. Now I find that to be amazing because a lot of lambs were sacrificed, a lot of bulls were sacrificed during Passover. And it's astonishing to me that that is not where the most animals were sacrificed. The most animals were sacrificed during the Feast of Booths. That's kind of extraordinary to me. Fifth, it was a feast at which once every seven years, so every time the seventh year came about uh, at the Feast of Booths, the priests would go out and they would read the entire law in front of everyone, in front of all of Israel, the whole people. Okay, so it was a time of public reading. Every seventh one was a time of public reading where they would go out and read the Mosaic law in front of all of the people. Deuteronomy 31, 10 through 11. Sixth, it was a feast at which water was drawn from the pool of Siloam every day and poured upon the altar while the people sung the 12th chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah 12, verse 3. That's interesting. It was almost like they were washing the altar with this water and then they would sing this song during that moment. And they did it every day. And then seventh, it was a feast which followed close on the great day of atonement where the scapegoat was released into the wilderness which symbolized the casting away of the sins of the people and where the high priest entered the holiest of holies once a year. Leviticus 16 um, verses 1 through 34. So when they entered into the Feast of Booths, they had the Feast of Atonement and those sorts of things still fresh in their minds. So this was a very, very big feast, very significant, lots of things happening during it over a seven-day period. The ancient historian Josephus called the Feast of Booths, and he was actually around uh, back then, he called it the holiest and greatest feast of the Jews. Again, that's interesting. Uh, other names for the Feast of Booths are, and maybe you've heard this one, the Feast of Tabernacles. Maybe you're familiar with that. And the Feast of Ingathering. And Sukkoth, I think, is the Jewish name for it. So there's different names for this feast. Now, all of, and this is really significant, all of the Jewish feasts point to Jesus and find their ultimate fulfillment in Him. All of the feasts were, were geared toward the coming Messiah or the work of the Messiah or even the second advent of Messiah. The Feast of Booths foreshadows things like the return of Christ or the second advent, the ingathering of all His people because literally all of the people of Israel came together for the Feast of Booths. So there's the significance. So it recognized symbolically the ingathering of all of the Lord's people at it symbolized the destruction of the Lord's enemies, including Satan. And it symbolized the establishment of both the millennial and eternal kingdoms. Obviously, that's where all of the Lord's people will be gathered together once and for all, right, in those kingdoms. So this feast points to all of those things. So for six months between the Passover feast and the Feast of Booths, Jesus went about in Galilee performing miracles and discipling the twelve. 
In the second half of verse 1, John tells us that, that Jesus was unwilling to go south to Judea at that time because the religious leaders were seeking to kill him. You can see it there in the text. In verses 3 and 4, Jesus receives an invitation to go to Judea at that moment and, and to attend the Feast of Booths. And then down in verses 6 through 8, we see his response. So let's begin with 3 and 4, okay? It says this, So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Well, this is a very, very interesting set of verses. The Bible tells us that, that Jesus actually had four brothers. How many of you knew that and did not know that? Did you know that he actually had siblings? He actually had siblings. The Bible tells us he had four brothers. Their names were James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, or Jude. Matthew 13, verse 55. And he also had sisters, which are not named or numbered. Matthew 13, 56. Now these brothers and sisters are, are the children that Joseph and Mary had after the birth of Jesus. Technically... Uh, these guys and gals were Jesus' half-brothers and half-sisters because Joseph is not Jesus' biological father, right? He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, Matthew 1.18. Now, his brothers, uh, his brothers, and we're not sure which ones here or how many of them actually came to Jesus while he was in Galilee and asked if he would come with them to Judea to perform miracles during the feast. Now, they gave Jesus two reasons why he should accept their invitation and come with them. And it's all listed here in the text. First, and here's their rationale. First, if he performed miracles in Judea, this would benefit the disciples he had there. This is a point they make to him. And we don't know how it would benefit them. Maybe it would strengthen their faith or something like that. We don't know what they had in mind, but that's what they said to him. Now, one of my commentaries suggested that Jesus' brothers may have wanted him to go to Judea to win back the disciples he lost six months earlier after the synagogue discourse at Capernaum. But you lost a whole bunch of people, Jesus. You could go and win them back just by performing a few miracles. That's what somebody suggests. That could be true. I don't know. It doesn't say here, so it's conjecture. So the first thing is you can go and, and perform miracles and it'll benefit the disciples you already have. Or maybe you could win back ones you've lost. We don't know what they were thinking. Second, if he performed miracles in Judea, he would gain proper notoriety. In verse 4, they told Jesus that performing miracles in Galilee was like doing them in secret. Do you see it there? If you do things in secret, you're not going to become known. They basically said that he was wasting his time performing miracles in Galilee. Well, as long as you stay down here, you're doing things in secret. It's crazy to me that they would say something like that to him. Their point is, if he wanted to gain proper notoriety, Jesus, if you wanted to become more popular, you would need to leave Hillbillyville, right? The farming capital, because that's exactly what Galilee is. It's the Central Valley. You'd need to leave Hillbillyville, get out of there, Take your boots and your spurs off, put on some nice loafers, get out of that area and come with us to the big city, to Jerusalem, to show off your powers. That's their suggestion. 
In his brother's minds, this was the perfect time for Jesus to leave behind Hillbillyville, Galilee and to come perform and, and do his thing in Jerusalem. The Feast of Booths, according to historians, drew more people to the city of Jerusalem than any of the other Jewish feasts, and some of them combined. It was actually quite larger than Passover, and I, as I said earlier, that's astonishing to me. It's really as if they said to him, look, you can come and do your thing and you will get the popularity and things that you're entitled to because there are going to be more people there for this feast than any other thing that you've been a part of. So why would you not come with us and do this? Now I want you to take special note of what his brothers said in the second half of verse 4. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Do you see the statement? They actually challenged Jesus here. In a way, they are daring him. This was their way of saying, if you can actually perform miracles like people say you can, go show the world what you can do. If you have this power and everyone's raving about it, go show the world what you can do. Do it. That's what they're saying to him. Now, this terrible, terrible statement reveals a lot about his brothers and John shows us who they really were and what they were really about in the next verse. Look at verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. Well man, it's starting to make sense now with the way that they were talking to him, right? Jesus' brothers were not believers. Not at this point, that is. They didn't become actual believers until after Jesus' resurrection. Acts chapter 1, verse 14. I mean, I'm thankful that they did become believers, but they weren't believers when Jesus was on earth doing His ministry. They didn't become believers until after His resurrection, which I suppose is part of His ministry, but they didn't become believers until after Jesus showed them that He had been resurrected. So they're not even believers at this point. Now, two of His brothers went on to become fairly well-known. James became the pastor of the Christian church in Jerusalem. He also also wrote the short New Testament epistle that bears his name, the book of James. Judas, a.k.a. Jude, authored an even shorter New Testament epistle, which bears his name, right? It has one chapter, 25 verses, and it is nicely tucked between 3 John and Revelation. It's called Jude. Maybe you've read that. So those guys kind of went on. Some of his brothers went on to become kind of, kind of known because they had some major influence in the church. God used them in a mighty way. Now, what motivated Jesus' brothers to track him down in Galilee and try to persuade him to come with them? What would drive them to do this? We've already seen that they're not believers. Okay, so, so, so that tells us something. Their motive is off. Something's wrong with them. Well, I've got two possible reasons, okay? First, sibling rivalry. Sibling rivalry. It could be... And I know this is going to sound harsh, but I think it, it, it could be true. It could be that Jesus' brothers actually hated him and wanted him gone. It could have been. I mean, imagine you grow up with Jesus, and he really is perfect, and you can't get him on anything, and you're his brother or sister. He's going to tick you off. First of all, when you're around righteous people, it can get you fired up when you're around people that live right. I know that's how it was when I was an unbeliever. I used to think, oh, they're so hypocritical. Well, he didn't do anything hypocritical. He was just living right. You weren't, and that offended you. Just imagine growing up in the same house with Jesus. No lying, no conniving, no punching the sibling, taking the toy, 
None of that stuff took place. He was like perfect. He was the perfect baby. Right? I, he was just, he was awesome. And you know that would cause problems for his sibling. Well, there goes old high and mighty Jesus. Right? Now, isn't this what happened with Joseph? Old Testament Joseph? What happened with him? His, his brothers became filled with jealousy and envy and hatred toward him. And what did they do? They sought to eliminate him by throwing him in a hole and leaving him for dead, didn't they? Now, I, Joseph and Jesus are two different people. Joseph is kind of like Christ in a sense, but he also waved around his you know, father's special love for him and with the coat of many colors and all that. And he did a pretty good job of ticking his brothers off. Jesus didn't do any of that. He didn't have a coat of many colors. He was perfect. But we see sibling rivalry in the life of Joseph who foreshadows Christ in some ways because Joseph lived a particular life of trust and servitude to the Lord and that's exactly what Jesus did. I mean, it's totally, totally possible. Jesus' brothers may have figured that if Jesus came to Jerusalem at that time, he would probably get arrested by the Jewish leaders and thrown into prison. Problem solved. It could be. Two, proof of messiahship. And I think this is more accurate. Jesus' brothers may have been looking for a quote-unquote solid proof that Jesus is who he said he is, that he is the Christ. They may have created their own acid test. If Jesus comes to Jerusalem and performs on the world stage, he will pass our test and win our faith. I think that's actually what they were after. I don't know if they hated him. I don't think they did. But I think they were trying to put him to the test so that they could commit themselves to him. Now, I'll tell you this. They could, if this is true, and there's got to be a reason why they did it, but if it's true that they wanted to put him to the test and, and that if he performed certain miracles, that would win them over, they could have saved themselves a lot of time, a lot of energy, if they had just come a little earlier and listened to his synagogue discourse in Capernaum, right? Their unbelief was not the result of not enough proof. No miracles will, any of those kinds of signs and wonders will convert a person just not going to happen. So, so their unbelief, their lack of faith was not the result of just give us one more proof. And Jesus taught this very clearly in his synagogue discourse. Their lack of faith was the result of one particular miracle that was missing. And it is the most important miracle for lost sinners. The effectual and regenerating call of the Holy Spirit through the gospel, which is exactly what Jesus preached in chapter 6, verse 44 and 45 of his synagogue discourse. If they were trying to get Jesus to come and win them over through miracles, it wouldn't have done any good because Jesus himself said, unless you're effectually called by the Spirit, no miracle is going to change you. You need that miracle primarily. And so they're trying to put him to the test. Who knows? Maybe they're thinking they'll get won over, but that's not how people are won over. They're only won over when the Spirit comes and changes our hearts. Now, in verses 6 through 8, Jesus denies his brother's request. He makes six statements. And I'm going to paraphrase each one before I read the actual text. You ready? Get ready to write these things down. Paraphrase first, then the words of Jesus second. And the reason why I'm paraphrasing first is that I'm hoping that it will help 
us all to understand what he's actually saying. Number one, first statement he makes, it is not time for me to go to the feast. Verse 6a, he said it like this, my time has not yet come. Okay? We must understand that, that Jesus followed a divine timetable set forth by the Father, and he would not deviate from it at all or under any circumstances. Everything Jesus did in his ministry was done in unison with this divine timetable or in unison with what I call the Father's timing. That's the name of this sermon. According to the Father's timing, it was not time right then for Jesus to actually go to Jerusalem. This is essentially what Jesus is saying to them. It's not my time to go there. J.C. Ryle put it like this. These words must mean that our Lord did everything during His earthly ministry according to a preordained plan. And He could take no step except in harmony with that plan. Okay, so the first thing is, not my time to go, because it doesn't square with the Father's timetable or timing. Second, he says this, paraphrased, you can go to the feast anytime you want. Verse 6b, he put it like this, your time is always here. Jesus' brothers had not been assigned tasks that needed to be accomplished in accordance with the Father's timing. They weren't the Messiah. They didn't live their lives in accordance with a divine timetable, right? They were not constrained by the same divine timetable as Jesus. And therefore, they could go to Jerusalem whenever they wanted. Jesus says to him, it's not my time to go there, but you can do whatever you want whenever you want. Go ahead. I can't do it. That's the second one. You can go to the feast anytime you want. Number three. There is no risk involved for you if you go to the feast. Verse 7a. He said it like this. The world cannot hate you. Okay, Jesus' brothers, once again, were unbelievers. They belong to the world. And that's what it says that unbelievers do. They belong to the world, right? To the world's system, the world's corruption, the world's philosophies and way of life and worldview. They were unbelievers. They belonged to the world. And guess what? The world loves its own. Because they belonged to the world, they were not hated by the world, nor were they facing any risk or danger if they went to Jerusalem. No one in Jerusalem was plotting for how to kill them because they posed no threat to the worldly religious leaders. They, they don't threaten the world. If they went to the feast, no one would bat an eye because they were just like everyone else, unbelieving and worldly. That's his point. Number four, and he contrasts it with himself. Number four, there is great risk involved for me if I go to the feast. Why? Because of what I preach. Verse 7b, he says it like this. It hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. Jesus had a, had a big target on his back. Why? Because he testified against the world that its works are evil. He exposed the hypocrisy and worldliness of the religious leaders who were supposed to live righteous lives. Those particular leaders, those men, deemed him a false teacher, an enemy of Judaism. 
There was actually a contract on Jesus' life. Go back and reread verse 1. They were planning for how to kill him. Going to the feast at this particular moment with his unbelieving worldly brothers would have been risky and unwise for Jesus. Following the divine timetable, however, ensured that Jesus would remain untouchable and virtually in, invincible until the appointed hour of his arrest. If he stuck to the Father's timetable, timeline, nothing would happen to him until the appointed time. Now, you must understand, the true reason why the world hates Jesus and why those religious leaders back then hated Jesus is not because of his claims to be Messiah or because of the high and spiritual doctrines that he preached, right? Because nobody preached like Jesus. Even the people then acknowledged that. Nobody speaks like this man, they said. The world does not hate Jesus because he claims to be Messiah or because of the doctrines and things that he preached. It hates him because he bears testimony against its sin and wicked practices. That's why the world hates Jesus. Well, he claims to be the Messiah. I hate him for that. Well, certainly. But the reason why you really hate him is because he calls you out on your immorality. He calls you out on your homosexuality. He calls you out on your porn addiction. He calls you out on your lying and your theft and those sorts of things. That's why we hate him. But he doesn't just call us out. He says that unless you repent and believe in me, you'll be stuck in those sins and you will perish. But this is why, this is why, make no mistake, this is why the world hates Jesus, because he testified against it that its works are evil. And this is what happens to us as Christians when, and MacArthur says it like this, when believers testify against the world and confront its wickedness, like Jesus did, they arouse its antagonism and hatred, don't they? Now, I would admit we need to address the world in, in a loving way, in an honoring way, in a respectful way. We don't want to go around beating people up with our Bibles. But when you live for Christ and model the way He lived, you know what? You're not going to be a friend of the world. The world is going to hate you. And if the world is cozy and comfortable with you right now, you're probably either not a disciple of Jesus or you're not doing it right. You're keeping your mouth closed when you should speak or whatever. The world hates Jesus. Why? Because he calls it on its sin. The world hates Christians for the very same reason, although I think we give the world other reasons at times to hate us. And that's that we don't handle the truth right or we're, we're just mean-spirited or we come across as judgmental. Shame on us. I've spent plenty of time playing that game. But for the most part, the world hates Jesus and the church and Christians because not because we're, Jesus is perfect, we're not perfect, but because we have a different worldview and we can see the difference between being saved and unsaved and sin and righteousness and those things. And we're trying to live for Him. And sometimes we've got to call people out on it for their own benefit, right? Isn't that why we should be motivated to see people get saved and rescued from their sin, not just to beat them up because they do things different than us? And quite frankly, do they really do things different than us? That's to imply that we no longer struggle with sin, right? We still struggle with sin. Whenever you go to somebody and, and want to call them out on something, you should hold a mirror nearby your face. That way when you're talking to them, you can glance over at yourself and go, I suck too. Like, you know what? You suck really bad. Oh, wait a minute. So do I. Oh, there's me. It's reality. But the world's going to hate you if you live like Jesus. Why? Because it hated Jesus. And Jesus warned his disciples about that, didn't he? All right, so that's 
number four, right? There's risk involved for him. The world hates him. The world wanted to kill him if he showed up. No risk for his unbelieving brothers. They're just like the world. Number five, Jesus says something like this. You guys leave without me and go to the feast. Verse 8a, he just simply says, you go up to the feast. We won't even comment on that. It's simple. Number six, he basically says, I'm not going to the feast right now because it is not my time to go. Verse 8b, he just reiterates what he said. He repeats what he said back in verse 6. So there's his response. He denies their request and he tells them why. You can go because you belong to the world. I can't. I don't belong to the world. The world wants to kill me. That's essentially what he tells them. Now let's take a look at 9 and 10. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. And then verse 10, But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, it says this, Then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Isn't that interesting? So after denying his brothers' request and encouraging them to go to the feast without him, Jesus remained in Galilee until after they left. And then he went down to Judea. So he waits for them to go, and then he goes. Now, some people say, look, he changed his mind here. No, he didn't change his mind. He had always intended and planned to go to the feast. It was part of the Father's timing, part of the divine timetable. His plan was just not to go with them at that moment. He was going to go the whole time, but not with them at that moment. In other words, his brother's timeline was out of sync with his timeline, plus... What did they want to do? They wanted to draw attention to Jesus and probably to themselves. When people traveled to, just think about this, when people traveled to Jerusalem for these feasts, they went in really, really big caravans. They didn't travel by themselves. They went in huge groups. We see an example of that back when Jesus was about 12 years old and he went to to Jerusalem with his family for a feast. And basically after they left Jerusalem, the parents lost him. The caravan was so big, they didn't realize Jesus stayed behind and was handling his father's business at the temple. That's how big these caravans were. You could get lost in one of these caravans. And you know what? Jesus did not want to enter Jerusalem at this time in a large caravan with lots and lots of people pointing to him and doting over him and fawning over him, right? Because that's what would have happened. For crying out loud, they might have tried to hoist him up. Look, here comes our king. We don't know, but he was not willing to go with them at that time. must understand that the divine timeline did not include two triumphal entries. It included one, Matthew 21, 1 through 11. Mark 11, 1 through 11. Luke 19, 28 through 40. What is the triumphal entry? It's the moment when Jesus' Passion Week begins and he enters, he enters Jerusalem on the back of a cult, on a full of a cult, and, and he's celebrated and palm branches are put down. They're celebrating him as Hosanna, the king who has come. Well, the timeline only included one of those. He didn't want that to happen again right here to get attention prematurely. I like what MacArthur said about this little section here. He said, by the time Jesus left Galilee, most of the people would have already arrived in Jerusalem and the roads would have been relatively deserted. Jesus also, this is so fascinating. I didn't know this until I read this commentary. Jesus also traveled through Samaria. Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 56. And he says, which few Jews were willing to do. 
doing so, you know, going after everyone was pretty much there and going through Samaria, which is an unmarked territory. You didn't just didn't, as a Jewish person, you didn't go through Samaria, right? Doing this allowed Jesus to avoid any unnecessary publicity and fanfare, attention that could have led to a premature confrontation with the Jewish leaders. I think that's just a great point. Now let's look at 11. This is great. It says this in 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast. <laughs> and they were actually saying, where is he? So Jesus came into Jerusalem quietly and he maintained a low profile until day three of the feast, right? If you look down at verse 14, he shows up, he comes out into the temple, he starts doing his thing. So he didn't keep on the down low the whole time during the feast. He just waited until the right moment, until the divine timeline said, go do it. But he comes into the city and he's like in stealth mode. He's like a ninja. Nobody knows where he's at. Nobody knows what he's doing. And guess what? The religious leaders are trying to figure out if he's there. They assumed he would be there, right? Because this is like the biggest feast of the year. Jesus hasn't missed one yet as far as they knew. Of course he's going to be here, right? So they assumed that he would be there. And guess what? They went hunting. It's like they got their deer tags. We're going to go find him and bag one. They wanted to kill him. They searched the entire city. They searched the temple grounds. They scoured the whole place. They looked everywhere. They searched everywhere, but they couldn't find him. And they also asked people that were around. You know, they kept going to people and saying, where is he? Where is he? Have you seen Jesus? We know he's got to be in the city for the feast. Is he here? Where is he? They wanted to know. The Greek word rendered he, the end of that verse there, implies dislike and contempt. So they weren't referring to, they were not willing to refer to him as Jesus or rabbi or any of those other, the name or the titles that they had given him earlier. They had no respect for him at this point. And they just said, where is he? Where's that dude at? Where's that guy at? They were filled with discontent, just with contempt for him and dislike and they hated him. And where's he at? Where's that guy? And the religious leaders weren't the only ones in the city talking about Jesus. They weren't the only ones searching for him. They weren't the only ones discussing him at that moment. Look at our last verses, 12 through 13. It says, and there was much muttering. What a bizarre word. I just think of a dog, like a mutt. After there was much, or after, uh, and there was, pardon me, and there was much muttering about him among the people. And here's what they were saying. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. And then in our last verse there, verse 13, it says, yet for fear of the Jews, no one, no one spoke openly about him or of him. Okay, so right here we get the idea according to what John recorded for us. And he, and he was obviously there. He was a witness to these things. The guy that wrote this gospel was a witness. Everyone in the town, in the city was looking for Jesus. Everyone was talking about Jesus. The religious leaders were hunting for him. Others were kind of looking around for him. But bottom line, everyone was muttering or talking about Jesus. The word... Uh, Greek word rendered muttering. Again, it's just a bizarre English word to describe what's actually happening here. What it actually means is that this is like behind the scenes talk. Like this is a conversation you have with somebody in private. 
So they were talking, they were muttering, they were speaking about Jesus in private conversations. In other words, not openly, like, yo, have you seen Jesus? If you said that, you'd be in a lot of trouble. They were talking among themselves. They were discussing him. And muttering can also mean either positive or negative talk, depending on context. So in private discussions, people were speculating about Jesus. And they had both positive and negative opinions about him. There really are two classes of people represented here. Right? You have the class of simple-minded, and I don't see, mean by you know just dumb and they don't have any sense or anything. I mean just simple-minded, simple-thinking, true-hearted Israelites. All right? There's that class, the simple-minded, true-hearted Israelites. They had uh, sufficient independence for, to think for themselves. So this is like the common true Israelite, not a part of the whole scheme and game and religious game. Not that they were irreligious, but they just weren't part of the, the religious mechanism. These simple-minded, true-hearted Israelites, they were saying things about Jesus like, He's a good man. I've heard good things about Him. I've seen Him heal people. He's a good dude, man. That's what they were saying. That's one class. And then you have the class of carnal Jews who thought nothing of true religion and who basically took their cues from everyone else, especially the religious leaders. They were saying, no, he's leading the people astray. So you have two classes of people talking, ones that really aren't a part of that whole scheme. They're just saying, no, he's a pretty good dude. And the other one's saying, no, 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 you don't understand he's leading Israel astray. But they weren't even speaking according to their own knowledge or experience. They were speaking because that's what they'd heard. They were regurgitating, repeating what they heard other people say. But here's the reality. Both classes were wrong in their opinions, weren't they? Jesus is not merely a good man. He is a good man. He's the greatest man. But He's not just a good man. He is the Son of God. He is God. He is the Savior of the world. And here's here's what's so frightening is that there's so many people today that will say that very thing about Jesus. He was a good man. He was a good teacher. He was a good rabbi. He was a good person. He was fair. Oh, by the way, he was a Democrat. (laughs) He was a socialist. I see this on Twitter all the time. He was a socialist. He was like Bernie Sanders. Okay, now you're blaspheming. He was like Trump. Now you're blaspheming. Yeah, he, he wasn't like Bernie Sanders. He wasn't a socialist. He wasn't just a nice guy, just a good person. And, and this is the opinions of people in the world today. Right? Well, he was a good dude. Yeah, I've heard he was a good dude. You know he's a savior. No, he's not the savior. He's a good guy. He taught good things. We should follow some of his examples. And I also follow Buddha and Islam and, you know, and this, that, and the other. Right? That's how people think today, right? Well, here's the trouble. Jesus is not merely just a good man. He is the Son of God. He is exactly who He proclaimed Himself to be and who He was affirmed to be through His miracles and through the teachings of the apostles and through God and God's Word. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. And, and you know what? Quite honestly, we, we must receive Him as such if we are to experience eternal life and to be raised on the last day, as He said over and over in the synagogue discourse. If we think of Jesus just as a, as, a, as a, what do they say, he's a good man, that's not going to save us. You have to think of Jesus in terms of who he really is, that he is God, that he came down from heaven, that he came to die on a cross for our sins, to earn our righteousness through his righteous living and these things. You've got to believe what Jesus said about himself. 
you got to if you're going to be saved. If you just say he's a good man, you ain't going to heaven. Buddha's not going to help you, and neither is Muhammad. You're in trouble. Don't think of him just as a good man. Yes, he's a good man, but he is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world, and we must receive him as such if we are to receive eternal life. So the crowd, that, or the, the class of people that were a little bit more friendly toward him, they were still wrong. He's a good man, and that's where it ended for them. And also, Jesus did not, under any circumstances, lead the people astray. He did not come to deceive people. He did not come to lead people astray. He came to give them life. Satan is the one who leads people astray. And Satan was working through the religious leaders and religious establishment and the false religion of that day, just as he does today. Uh, Satan is called the father of lies. He, he's, the, he's the father of murder. He is the great deceiver. And, and if, if, if someone stops that Jesus is a good man, it sounds to me like Satan's deceived them into thinking he's just a good man. Right? Now, Jesus is more than a good man. But I'll tell you what, it's Satan. It's Satan that is that really the lower G God of this world. He is the prince of the power of the air, it says in Scripture. And he is the one that blinds unbelievers. He is the one that keeps unbelievers blind. Not to mention their own human depravity and sin blinds them. But Satan works in cooperation with their sinfulness to keep them blind, to keep them deceived, to keep them led astray. Satan is behind that. Jesus didn't come to lead people astray. The religious leaders said that, and this class of people said that, but it's Satan who was leading them and working through them to say those things and to keep them blind from seeing who Jesus actually is. Now, here's what's interesting. Both classes, the ones who said he's a good guy, the ones that said, no, he's leading people astray, neither of them were willing to speak openly about Jesus because they feared the Jews or the religious leaders. And I read this. This is just fascinating. At this point, at this point in this storyline and at this point in history, the Jews actually created, when I say Jews, I mean religious leaders, they actually created some pretty severe consequences or punishments, discipline for those who spoke openly about Jesus at this point. You literally if you were standing on a street corner and having a conversation with somebody and a Pharisee walked by and heard you talking about Jesus, you'd be in a lot of trouble. This is how much they hated Jesus at this point. They, were, they wanted to kill Him now. Why wait for the cross? They wanted to execute Him on the spot. They tried to do it at the end of chapter 8, at the end of the feast. Listen to the consequences. Here, here's one of the consequences for speaking openly about Jesus. It was very, very severe it included excommunication from the synagogue. You know what that meant? That meant that a person, a Jewish person, was literally cut off from all Jewish life. If you got caught talking about Jesus. Isn't that crazy? This is, this is what the religious leaders constructed during that day. That if you got caught talking about Jesus, you could be excommunicated from Judaism, removed from the synagogue, never to worship and fellowship there again. Maybe removed from your family since your family is devout Jew. How are you going to interact with them when you've been kicked out? It's almost as if you're treated like a leper or something like that, someone who's an outcast, a tax collector. Serious, serious punishment for speaking about Jesus openly. And that's why they were what? Muttering. 
That's why they were sitting over here and, well, you know, I think he's a good guy. No, I think he leads. Oh, there's a Pharisee. Uh, yeah, you know, I went and played tennis the other day. You know, I don't even know if they had tennis back then, but you just did not talk about Jesus out in the open. You, you, you know, you would probably face similar punishment if you were caught speaking openly about Jesus in Iran right now. You probably would. It wouldn't be excommunication from the mosque. It would be jail. Well, he's committed sedition. He's preaching against the great prophet Muhammad in our religion. Serious consequence for talking about Jesus. So they muttered. They kept it quiet, but they still wanted to talk about him. They still wanted to discuss him, right? They still wanted to talk about him. That kind of inspires me. And we don't even have to do it in secrecy. Why aren't we talking about Jesus all the time? Sometimes we're too afraid to talk about him openly. We mutter. You say, I love him. He's my Messiah. Oh, by the way, how you been? You know, we're ashamed. What is our problem? In any case, they wouldn't speak openly because they didn't want to get nailed for it. Closing. Now, there's a whole bunch of great little topics in here. We could talk about discipleship. Right? That's what Jesus did for six months. I mean, he discipled these guys for three years, but for six months he gave them intensive discipleship. I could ask you the question, who are you discipling? Who are you pouring into? Who are you investing into? Who are you, uh, who are you teaching the gospel to your children, your neighbors, your, work, you know, the, your workmen, the people that you work with, your fellow students? Who are you discipling? You, you realize we're all called to make disciples, Right? Matthew 28, go and make disciples, baptize. It didn't say go and grow your churches really big and don't get to know anyone because that's exactly what happens today. That's discipleship in America. That's not discipleship. That's disciple something else. That's garbage. I'm not saying big churches are garbage. I'm just saying if, you're, if you think Matthew 28 means I have to have a giant church where I preach in front of a lot of people and nobody knows each other, you've missed Matthew 28. We are to make disciples to teach people all that Christ commanded, to baptize them in the name of the Trinity and these sorts of things. I could, I could stop there and talk to you about that for a while. Who are you discipling? I could even probably point to how Jesus' brothers were trying to make him jump through their hoops. Are any of us trying to do that? Well, Jesus, if you do this, this, and this, I'll do this. Or We could go there. That's another subject that's here. We could go back to what I just talked about, about muttering instead of openly speaking about Jesus, evangelizing and, and, and these sorts of things. We could go there. Those aren't the things I want to focus on in the end. I want to focus on the Father's timing as we close because I think that this particular subject is always important and I think it's really, really important for us right now in this room. Right now. Just think about the culture we live in for a moment. No, don't, don't think of the protests and all that stuff. Think about th- these aspects of our culture, like th- the fact that we eat fast food all the time. Fast food, you know, fast, right? We use computers that get things done super, super quick, right? Our smartphones, right? I mean, literally, we can zip around. You haven't heard this phrase for a long time, the World Wide Web. That's like 1994. But we can use our, right? What's the worldwide? All the young kids in here, the generation, I don't know what generation they are now, Z or Y or X chromosome, who knows? But what are you talking about? Have you ever like just 
realized how quickly you can get around on your phone. You can like be in different parts of the world in, in just half a second if you have Verizon. Actually, not Verizon. Yeah, if you have Verizon. If you have AT&T, you're, you're stuck in Modesto for a little while. Hey, I work there. What's he talking about? Yeah, I'm talking to you. Fix it. I, I just want you to think in terms of our culture that we live in where everything is expedited, everything is fast. Our food is fast, our communication is fast, our computers are fast, our internet, everything is fast, 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 fast. And, and quite frankly, I think the majority of Americans, me included, live very fast-paced lives, right? We're just jumping from one thing to the other. I'm always astonished when I'm talking to somebody and they had like two or three things to do in the day and they're totally like overwhelmed and destroyed. I'm like three to the 20th power. I don't even know what that equates to. Hopefully high. But it's like, you only had to do three things today and you're destroyed? I want your life. Let's trade places for a little bit. And I get it. Some of us have really high stress jobs, so I don't want to beat you up. But I'm just always amazed. It's like I go from one thing to the next. I, I have to be reminded to Sabbath. Hey, you need to take a break or you're going to explode. Huh? Drinking coffee. Everything is fast. Our food, our computers, our lives, our phones, hopefully. Our, everything is just fast, fast, fast. And I'll tell you, there's a great danger living under these circumstances. And that is that our, we tend to take the fast, 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 everything quickly and all of that. You know, we want everything lightning quick at our, our fingertips, but we tend to take all of that and it kind of bleeds over into our spiritual lives, right? If you're living in a fast-paced culture with all of these fast things, you tend to apply that to just about every other area of your life and everything else. You even try to sleep fast, you know? <laughs> but it really does bleed over into your spiritual lives, right? And I'll tell you what, it's just so dangerous when we treat our spiritual lives, when we treat things like that, the more important things, when we treat them in such a manner. And what happens is because we are groomed and enculturated and raised up in a culture that's fast, we apply it to our spiritual lives. And, and really, I think we, when it comes to spiritual things and waiting on God, we don't know how to do that because we live in an environment that's fast-paced. And what happens is, is that even our prayers are quick. Thank you for the food. Amen. Can you help me with this? Amen. Right? We pray everything fast. And, and I tell you what, we, we don't even know how in this kind of culture to wait on the Lord. Or we have great difficulty in doing that. Like, like the Father's timing. You've you got great timing, but it's not quite fast enough. Do you not understand, Lord, the culture we live in? I need you to answer this prayer faster. I need this result quicker, right? That's, that's what we do. If you live in this culture, you tend to apply that to spiritual categories and your spiritual life. That's very, very dangerous because when we don't get fast results from God, we almost always take matters into our own hands and force an outcome. And now we're in big trouble. I, literally, when we do this, when, when everything is fast but he's not fast, we try to speed things up and rush it, and that leads to disaster. It certainly can. You could marry the wrong person. You might be thinking, well, that's impossible. Are you kidding me? Some of you right now are going, I was wondering what the problem was. <laughs> Sorry, honey. 
If you don't think that it's possible to marry the wrong person, you got another thing coming. And I tell you what, I am blown away by Christians. As soon as they meet somebody, we're getting married. You've been together for 24 hours. Yeah, but in 72 hours, we're getting married. They act like God's not going to bring them anyone else or that God has closed off the ocean of dating. There's no potential to have, I've got one, I've got one, I've got to hang on to him. And this is how Christians are. They're insane. I, I think people in general are insane, but I've seen this insanity with Christians. The minute they meet somebody, it's like they're already moving to, well, I was told that we Christians don't date. We have to court. don't even know what that means. We have to court and we have to date in such a way that we're going to get married. And next thing you know, people are getting married. And then five years later, they're in my office going, I can't believe I married this guy. I can't believe I married her. You can, you can be waiting on the Lord. You, you could be a person that, that fits with Scripture, you know, one who, who burns with passion, who should be married. Paul said get married, but that doesn't mean marry the first person that comes along. It means wait for the Father's timing. He'll make it clear so that you have the right spouse. And what do we do? We, we just, I got one fish on. And next thing you know, you're married and you don't even know the dude. You thought they loved Jesus because they said they did. They went to a Joel Osteen event. That should have been a red flag. <laughs> you really? You're dead to me. You know? I'm sorry. Maybe some of you like Joel Osteen. Just like John Calvin more. You can marry the wrong person. You can totally, like, get the wrong job because you didn't wait on the Father's timing. You can actually buy the wrong house. Oh, no, you can't. Yeah, you can. You can get in over your head. You can get it in over your head. You can marry the wrong person. You can get it in over your head on a car purchase or on a house purchase. There are so many ways to take matters into our own hands. I can't even list them all. And how many of us have done that? And when you put your hand up, don't be thinking of your spouse. Rachel's like, she's not just waving, she's pointing at me. <laughs> Preach it, brother. I've been figuring this out for 20 years. You can do this. If you take matters into your own hands, it can lead to disaster in a multitude of ways. The list goes on and on and on. And I'll tell you what, we can learn a lot by looking at biblical examples like Abraham and Saul. Remember King Saul, the first king of Israel? Now, God promised to make Abraham the father of many nations. You know what that means? He was going to have some children, and his children would have children and all that, right? That, that's what God meant to him. You know, he was an old man. He was worried about having kids. He was, his wife was barren. They couldn't have kids. I get that, but, you know, it's like he was going to... God promised him early on, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. You're going to have children. They'll have children. They'll have children. You'll have, you'll have so many people that come out of your bloodline. It's crazy, but you know what? In his old age... In his impatience, he decided to speed up God's plan, speed up God's timing, and have a wife through his, or have a, have a child through his wife's handmaiden, Hagar. Right? You, you know the story. What happened? This caused major, major problems and friction in his marriage with Sarah, his wife, and she's the one that suggested he should have just told her, no, we're going to wait on the Lord, but he didn't do it. He gave into the flesh, gave into the impatience. I don't know if God's promises are true. No faith. And he gives in, jacks up his marriage, jacks up Hagar and Ishmael, his kid, through her. And you know what? This has created major, major trouble between Arabs and Jews in the Middle East even today. 
You see the warfare over there? Some of it's tied to this. Some of it's tied to that lack of patience and that dumb decision. The decision I've done, I don't know how many times. King Saul's a great example. He, he was instructed to wait seven days for the... Just seven days here. Okay, seven days. You can't wait seven days, right? He was instructed to wait seven days for the prophet Samuel to return to Gilgal so Samuel could offer special sacrifices and offerings to the Lord. Well, guess what? Samuel was delayed and Saul grew impatient. What did he do? He ordered his servants to bring him the animals. This guy's not even authorized to make sacrifices. He's not a priest or anything. He's just a king, and he was more worldly than anything. He tells him, okay, Samuel's not here. He's delayed. Bring me the animals. I'll slice them up. I'll burn them on the altar. He goes ahead and does this, right? He impatiently broke the command of the Lord, and guess what? It led to the removal, his removal as king of Israel. He lost his kingdom. He's an embarrassment and a laughingstock. That's just two examples of people not living in faith and trusting in God and and living in accordance with the Father's timetable or timing. I'll tell you what, not trusting in the Father's timing, taking matters into our own hands can have absolutely devastating consequences. Now, I, I know, I'll be the first to admit, it's not easy to wait on the Lord especially when you've got real legitimate needs. I'm talking real legitimate needs, like things that you really need. Most of the things that we get tired of waiting for aren't things that we actually need. Ain't that true? Well, I just got tired of waiting, so I did this. Well, you really didn't need that because you had a car. Well, it's not easy to wait on the Lord, especially when you have real legitimate needs. But I'll tell you what, it is completely necessary if we want to honor the Lord and avoid adding trouble to our lives. Wouldn't we all agree that we have enough trouble in our lives? You don't have to really do much but just be standing still and minding your business and doing your thing and doing the right thing and there's just troubles everywhere. I would say life is already hard. We do not need to make it harder on ourselves through impatience and rushed decisions, right? Because when we don't trust in the Father's timing and we take matters into our own hands, we tend to bring trouble into our lives. But you know what? We're not the only ones who experience the trouble, are we? We tend to bring that trouble into everyone else's lives around us, into our families, marriages maybe, friendships, neighborhoods, church, workplace, I'll tell you, today, nearly 4,000 years later, the Jewish people are still experiencing all sorts of trouble because of Abraham's impatience. Let's let that sink in. My question to you is this. What are you dealing with today that requires patience and waiting on the Father's timing? And here's my instruction to you, if that's you. Pray sincerely about your issue. Really take it to the Lord and pray about it and and bathe that issue in prayer. Keep praying about it to the Father. In the Spirit, in the name of Jesus. Keep praying it up. Seek godly counsel if you need it. A lot of times we, we feel like we need to take matters into our own hands and we're about to do that. 
and then maybe the Spirit kind of prompts us to get some counsel from one of the elders at the church, and then we say, I don't really need it, I got this, I'm in control, and then we go through with it, and then we bring catastrophe. When all you could have just came down, you could have just texted an elder, you could have texted me. I'm not here to tell anyone no. I'm here to try to inspire you to make right decisions that honor the Lord. I'm not going to ever tell you no unless you just want to go sin, then I'm going to tell you don't do it. I might even tell you, I'm going to put my foot in your rear. But if it's something else, I might just tell you, well, what do you think you should do about that? And when you say no, amen. I'm not a yes or no kind of person. I try to reason with people. But you could have just got a little bit of input. We could have met over coffee or lunch or whatever. You could have came to my house. I'd have loved on you there. My wife and I would have poured into you, and we could have helped you make a better decision and avoid taking matters into your own hands and bringing potential catastrophe. You pray about your issue. You seek godly counsel if you need it. And I'll tell you what, if you are in Jesus Christ by grace through faith, if you're a believer, if you're a true disciple, know that God hears your prayers. Know that God loves you. And know that His plan for your life and His timing are absolutely perfect. That's something that's hard to believe when we have needs and we want something really, really bad. There is a reason why it hasn't come. And that is the love of the Father being expressed to you because He knows you better than yourself. He knows your situation. He knows the beginning, the end, the middle, all of it. He knows what is best. The the, the delay is purposeful. The delay is filled with sanctification to make you like Jesus. Don't take matters into your own hands. Don't do it. Now, some things are just a no-brainer, right? Some things are just a no-brainer. You don't have to seek the Lord for six months to figure out, you know, certain things. There's things that are just, you get it. But sometimes some of these things are bigger, and they require more patience, more counsel in these things. Listen to this psalm as I close. Psalm 27, verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. 